It's a, a privilege to bring the word again this week. Um, let me say, if you remember last week, uh, we, uh, we introduced the blessings and the curses. Do you remember that? And uh, we just felt beat up by the end of this thing. Uh, I, I love, uh, like when we're talking about Israel, it's so hard for a Gentile to feel like what we need to know, like the significance of these things, because that's just talking about some people thousands of years ago. And so as we open up the curses, we look, the blessings and curses, we looked and saw that uh, there's blessing if you obeyed, right? And there was curses if you did not. There's a lot more emphasis on the curses. Why? Because God's goodness toward us, that he was demonstrating towards Israel that I love you so much that these curses or these, these things that will come on you is for, so that you would be drawn back to me, just like a father disciplines his child. Uh, and so when we, uh, when we looked into it, I, I read this verse, and we, we feel the condemnation of the curse that was put on Israel because Paul referenced it back to us. This is where we were implicated at the very end. It says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. That curse. Because if we didn't, it said, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Now, it's evident that no one in this room, no one in this town, no one in this country, in this world, is justified by God, by the law. So I get condemned. I'm standing condemned by the law that condemned Israel for their disobedience. Number of places said if we fail the law one time, we're guilty of the whole law. So I feel the weight of that curse, and I love this verse, just perfect transition from the Lord's Supper, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became my curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Uh, such a powerful picture. Uh, I'll say this right now. Next week, Steve will be going through now the end statements of Moses, um, chapters 23, or 32, 33, and 34. Um, but today, we're going to spend some time looking at this idea of training leaders as seen in Deuteronomy 31. All right? So if you have your Bible, if you just pay attention up here, that's fine too. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 31, uh, I, I remind you that Moses is 120 years old. He's, how many could handle leading a million people at 120 years old? All right, God, God gave him uh, strength. It said that he, another place said he, he didn't grow feeble, right? He was still capable but, but he was no longer capable to lead the people. But I'll say this, he's looking at a whole new generation that's about to enter the promised land. That all the people that he came out of Egypt with, all the adults, all of them have perished over the previous 40 years. And so everything that he's saying to them is almost restating what he originally said. But now there's this, this thing he knows that he's not going to enter. He's not going to be leading to enter. 
but he's, he's got to pass the baton to the person that God has placed in his place to lead. And so he feels this weight in chapter 31, 32, 33, and 34, this weight of communicating to the people, not just blessing, but instruction. And so we look at Deuteronomy 31, this, this weight of what God is, uh, is placed on him being shifted. It says, so Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said them to them, I am 120 years old. I am no longer able to go out and come in. You remember last week that picture of going out and coming in? It's talking about everyday life, <laughs> right? But it's more than that. He, he's unable to lead now. It's, it's, he's, uh, he's no longer capable of leading them. He's about to head into military battle when they cross that river, right? And the Lord said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. Uh, do you remember, I don't know, I know most people know this, but uh, Moses' life was split into three parts, right? The first 40 years, he was in Egypt. Remember, God graciously spared his life and preserved him for his people, but then he tried to enact God's plan, right? I'm going to stand for my people, and what did that ha- what happened because of that? He fled to the wilderness, fled to Midian, right? And so for 40 years, he had to live with his father-in-law, right? My father-in-law's in the room, that's why I said that, okay? He had to live with his father-in-law for 40 years, and then God called him, who was incapable of leading, incapable of speaking, God called him and said, I'm going to have my people be set free and you're going to lead this thing. Not me? You remember the storyline. And so for the last 40 years, the beauty is that he led them out of Egypt. But the depressing thing is the faithlessness of the people, the faithlessness of Moses caused that they would not enter into the promised land. And that's where he said, you shall not go over this Jordan. Verse 3 says, the Lord your God himself will go over before you, and he will destroy these nations before you. So God's taking charge, so that you shall dispossess them, and Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. Do you remember, too, back, I know it's been months now, uh, who were the two people that said, Let's believe God. Joshua and Caleb. The, the, the two people that when the people cried out, oh, it's too scary, the, the giants in the land, I know there's blessing, but it, we can't do this. And Joshua and Caleb are like, well, God said we could, so we, let's do it, right? And so they said, don't fear and let's not rebel. Let's walk by faith. And everybody doubted. And ironically, too, their doubt moved them to start grabbing stones because they were going to stone Joshua. He was about to lose his life that day because he stood and said, God is leading and we can trust him. But God intervened in that situation, if you read back in it. And it's ironic that when somebody's convicted in their sin, convicted in their, their uh, faithlessness, and somebody stands up and said, God has given us the victory. Or, or maybe it's, it's worded this way. It's, it's accountability for your sin. 
Who do people get upset with when they're in sin and somebody speaks truth and love? They get upset with the messenger. They don't get upset with the message. They attack the messenger who's sharing with them that your sin is causing you to, to disobey God. You are disobeying God by your faithlessness. So they were about to lose their life because they were believing that God could. All right, verse 4 <clears throat> says, And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And just, just so you see, Bashan and Hezbon, these countries, right here's the Jordan. Where's the promised land? I feel like a meteorologist right now. <laughs> the storms are coming this way. All right. So <laughs> I don't look as good as a meteorologist, but I'm just saying. So right here's the promised land, and they have to cross right here, and they've, they've gained ground. God has given them the victory. They, they, both of those kingdoms, they were just trying to pass through peacefully, and they said, no, you can't pass through. And so instead, God gave them, and they, just, they, they uh, dedicated their cities to destruction, and there was not one person alive in these kingdoms. And he's saying in verse 4, he's saying, I'm going to do it again. It's going to happen the same way. I'm going to give you these cities that seem so, so hard to defeat, that just feels so impossible. You kidding me? A place called Jericho that has fortified walls? But God said, I'm going to provide the victory. And it's not going to come by your effort. It's going to come by faith. So Deuteronomy 5, verse, or the 31.5, And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I've commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread for them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And so look, verse 7. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in sight of all of Israel. He pulled Joshua up and said, this is the man. This is who God is leading. He says this. Uh, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. He was saying, take hope and take courage in God's strengthening, that God will give you the victory. And then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the son of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Listen, here's a, here's a cool thought. Uh, it says this law, we all know that those first five books of the Old Testament are the Pentateuch, right? Who wrote them? Okay, so Moses is about to die. Who wrote the end? It could either be his scribes or it could have been Joshua. All that to say, when it says, when it says he wrote down the law and gave it to the priests, you're reading it. How crazy is that, that inside this story, that God has preserved this story by this man, Moses, right? 
And, and it's been preserved all these years for us to see the goodness of God. So, so verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may, that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting, and the Lord appeared in the tent In a pillar of cloud, the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. Could you imagine being the people, and I know this is one picture, uh, and we've seen these things in the sky, but imagine that they walk in and this pillar comes up out of the wilderness. and, And God is saying, this is who we're to follow, Joshua. And, and Moses is, is, is this transfer, and God is stamping his approval. And let me just say this. It would be terrifying to be Joshua, looking at a million people. He has no ability to lead them in and of himself, looking at countries and, and cities that he has no ability to defeat. And he said, be strong and courageous. And God's stamp of approval, it, it enables you to not, if you walk by sight, I'll say it this way. You walk by sight, it's pretty overwhelming. It's daunting. It's impossible. But if you walk by faith, you can trust that God's going to bring the victory. Right? Verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. You're about to die. Then his people will arise and whore after the foreign gods. Among them in the land that they are entering, they will... forsake me and break my covenant that I've made with them, what's going to happen when they break this covenant? Curses. Why? The goodness of God. The goodness of God. And he does not desire them to chase after the whores of that town, that chase after idols and gods that are lesser lovers than the, the true God, their spouse. Right? And says, verse 17, Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? Whose fault is it? You remember chapter 27 God is going down this list by the way of the vehicle, the mouth of Moses, and curse after curse. If you do this secret sin, your country will be cursed. You will be cursed. You do this. And after every time, what did the people say? Amen. They agreed to it, that when curses come, it's my fault. Here, they'll come to that day and they'll say, have these evils come upon us because God is not among us. Has he forsaken us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for them against the people of Israel. There's a song that that Moses penned in chapter 32, and, and in it, is this constant reminder of the faithfulness of God that when they're in the midst of this curse because of their faithlessness, they're reminded continually years to come, even today. 
they're reminded of the faithfulness of God. For I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers. They've eaten full of grown, uh, grown fat, and they will turn to other gods and serve them. Despise me and break my covenant. And when, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. For it will live unforgotten in the mouths of your offerings. For I know what they are inclined to even today. Before I have brought them into the land, I have swore to give them. So Moses wrote this song the same day he taught it to the people. Right? And the Lord commissioned. This is where I want to park. The Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, saying, you see this constant message. The message was aimed at the people. The message was aimed from Moses to Joshua. It was aimed from Moses to the people. And who's commissioning him with this message? The Lord. Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. This is a, this is a tough reality. Uh, of every church across this country, across this world, it's, it's kind of how the kingdom of God works. The harsh reality is we are all replaceable. Every one of us in this room is replaceable. Whether you have huge responsibilities within this local body, God will raise up another one to put in your place. Whether you just open a door, God will place somebody in your place. I love this statement. Uh, oh, by the way, 100 years from now, I'll, I'll give you proof. 100 years from now, most likely none of us in this room will be alive. Do I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that the kingdom of God will continue? Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether, whether there's still a church in Canova 100 years from now, I don't know. Whether people are having to meet in house churches and hiding for their safety, I don't know. But I do know 100% sure that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Right? So I understand that I'm not going to be here and you're not going to be here. But God's kingdom is going to continue. It's not dependent on me. It's dependent on him. That's a harsh reality. When you've maybe served for years and years doing the same thing, it's hard to think that who's going to pick up the mantle. I love this quote. If you're an outdoorsman, you might know this name. Um, he's a guy from Georgia. He said, there's no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. The biggest problem in churches, when, when we're dealing with, when we're talking about um, ministry and leadership, the greatest issue, I believe, that keeps the growth in the local church, keeps leaders from being developed, keeps, keeps movement and health and life, one of the greatest problems in the local church is when we use our ministry to validate us. That I find my worth somehow by what I do in the local church. That I don't see myself as a servant of God, that if my master says you need to do this, 
No, this is what I do. This is my ministry. And so what happens is the goal is then self-preservation. So if, if my desire is to validate myself with this ministry and I'm no longer being validated or, or somebody's threatening me from being validated by my ministry, then I go into this mode where I'm self-preservation. I make it hard on anybody around me to develop because I want to be the centerpiece of this ministry. You know who the worst about that? Pastors. It's very rare to find someone like Steve Willis in this country. So it's not, this is not a position that validates him. He's a servant of the most high God. And so because of that, you look around Steve Willis and there's a bunch of young guys being developed in the ministry. He's not threatened. He's encouraged when young men step up. And so I, I enter into this thought, like I, I see this as the problem in every aspect of ministry in the local church. Uh, I enter into this thought that uh, if your goal is self-preservation, I'll think of it, Danny Pelfrey, are you in this room right now? I think he's in the second service. So Danny Pelfrey, he spoke up in a staff meeting about probably four months ago. He said this, he said, in, in the business world, in the workplace, when somebody comes in and says, you need to be able to replace yourself, what does that cause you to think? I'm on my way out the door, right? And so as a way of self-preservation, are you gonna try to work hard to replace yourself? No. You don't wanna be the horse that's led out to the pasture, right? You wanna save your place. Like, this is my job, and I don't want anybody to know the secrets of my job because then I won't be necessary. I won't be valuable to the company, right? And so the idea of working yourself out of a job is completely opposite that we think in this world. And I hope that it's outside the church. Because the reality is, when I'm gone, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that the fruit of your ministry when you're alive is that when you're gone, it continues? We're talking about the local church. The idea of self-preservation to validate you is contrary to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is calling us to raise up people all around us, right? So we're not alone, that, that God will replace me because I care more about the kingdom of God than my own self-preservation, amen? It's, a, it's kind of a hard word. Listen to what Paul's parting words to the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, he's about to go, uh, it's gonna have a pretty rough end of his life. His parting words, listen to what he said. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's, the ministry position is a place that you are serving, but, but don't think for a minute that that ministry is yours. Don't think for a minute that that place of service is yours. I'm reminded that to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood, you might have obtained that ministry with the sweat of your brow, but he obtained the church through the blood. He laid his life down to make a purchase of this church. Jesus, uh, Jesus later says, Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church. That reminds me of two things. 
He's the builder and he's the owner. I will build my church. And would to God if some of us would stand up and say, I will build my ministry. That ain't your ministry, right? It ain't my church. It ain't my garage or whatever. This is his. So if our desire as a local body of believers is discipleship, raising up leaders, and what does that look like? Uh, my, my goal, I, I, it's core to, core to where I am because I look in the mirror, and I don't know if you notice this, but there's a lot of gray on my face, right? I ran out of cool years years ago, but I'm still working with students, right? So it's a, a ticking, ticking time bomb. Like I, my time with students, is, the days are growing uh, shorter as a student pastor. And so I recognize, too, that the more I'm around Younger people, man, they relate more to students than I do. Like they're just way cooler because I'm their dad. Like I'm, I'm older than some of their dads, right? And let me tell you this. There's no dad in this room. You think you're cool, but you're not cool anymore if you're a dad, okay? <laughs> That's, that was a well-timed amen, I will say this. So 10 years ago in ministry, I was, I, was serving, I was serving as a music pastor, leading the choir, leading the orchestra, um, with a mic in my hand, like, uh, that was my thing. And what does, what's the, the biggest, the toughest thing about a music pastor is everything that you do is a performance, right? It can be perceived as a performance. And so in that performance-driven, if you come out of the service and it was flat, you go home Monday and you're like, man, that was terrible. When it was good, it was like, yes. I heard a quote, a pastor encouraged me 10 years ago. He said this, on Monday morning as a pastor, Monday morning it's probably not as bad as you think it is, but it's also probably not as good as you think it is, right? The reality is we make so much about the ministry and find our validation. And so what we do is pursue this idea that I'm the centerpiece of everything that happens in ministry. And I was confronted by our pastor down in Georgia. Uh, he confronted me with this thought that cut me to the core. He said, who is the greatest teacher, greatest preacher to ever walk this earth? And if you didn't say Jesus, then you need to go to Sunday school, all right? But all that says is Jesus Christ himself. And as he walked and was teaching what is the thing that he did as he was beginning his earthly ministry? The majority of his ministry was spent pouring into 12 men. And to think this narcissistic, self-centered person would think that I need to be the centerpiece of the ministries that I lead. That, that cut me straight to the core. Uh, so the priority of every person in this room, we've all been deputized to this priority. By the way, this was me. That was, that's what it feels like. I love being there. You know Why? validation. They need me. Reality is, that's what we should look like. Pouring into 12, pouring into men and women, right? Matthew 28, 16 says this, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains, to which Jesus had directed them. 
And when they saw him, this is post-resurrection, Jesus showing himself to his disciples. He chose his disciples because he had a purpose. He wanted to, he wanted to deputize them. He said when they saw them, him, they worshiped him, some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has all power, all authority. There's no crown, no kingdom, no governor that's more powerful than him. He's saying, I have all authority. Therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The idea of discipleship is not uh, Gentile. Um, I don't know if we have any Jewish heritage, any uh, Hebrew in the room. Let me say this. Gentiles had very little concept, if any, about the idea of what it means to be a disciple. We know it because we've heard it in church so much. But it is not a Gentile concept. It is a Hebrew concept. And listen, the Gentiles will set you here and preach. They'll present. They'll teach in Sunday school. Yet the greatest form of teaching is demonstrated by a rabbi and his disciples. Right? Here's what happens. And let, let me put it this way. It'll make sense. If you want to cook, what does a Gentile think? I need to get the cooking channel, maybe get a subscription to, subscription to the magazine, right? The reality is most effective thing to do, go to a church potluck and find the best cook and say, can I move in with you? Like, yeah, so, so you want to eat from them? You want to watch how they did that? You want to see it, see the finished product, and then as they're instructing you, a lot of the best cooks in the world are just like, you just put a little bit here and put a little bit here. Um, like most people, Gentiles, like what are the directions? Right? So the idea of discipleship is like I'm entering in. I see somebody that is, a, that is a, uh, just a master at what they do, and I'm going to enter in. It, it's kind of like this, but like full time. So when you're teaching guitar, as you're teaching guitar, you're playing the notes, you're strumming, you're, it's, it's a teacher doing it and a pupil sitting there doing it too. And if he's doing it wrong, the, pupil, the teacher, the, the rabbi in this circumstance will say, no, you got to do it this way. And before long, you're playing together. But imagine that it's like a continual guitar lesson. That's what Jesus demonstrated as he walked. He, he was living with these men, sleeping, eating. Everywhere he went, he was talking about truth. I love this. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Robbie Gallaty. He's written a couple books on discipleship and really the roots of discipleship. And uh, it was, it's caught my attention years ago. After Acts 21, never was there the mention again, the word disciple disappears and is never mentioned again. Why did it drop off? Did it become irreverent or irrelevant or insignificant? Followers of Jesus were called disciples, a term rooted in Jewish culture. However, Greeks and Romans were oblivious to the concept. So the gospel was moving from Israel and was now reaching to the ends of the earth. 
In Corinth, there was very few, if any, rabbis and disciples. The vast, the vast majority, the pagan cities such as Corinth, Ephesus, Alexandria, Rome, had no understanding of what the word disciple meant because the word was always used in reference to a Jewish rabbi. So what, what do we use? How do we describe what we should be doing as a local church? He says this, Paul writing to predominantly Roman and Greek audiences chose to simplify the concept by using a metaphor these non-Jews understood. He chose familial relationship of a parent to a child. This paternalistic relationship of maturity, formation, and development is seen in almost every book of the New Testament. All right, so at this point, I, I'm gonna need, uh, I need John Muncy to come up. I need uh, Jaden, come on up, if Jaden doesn't want to. All right, I need, uh, come on, I need J-Rod come up, a bearded brother. So, all right, Josiah, you want to come up? <laughs> Just pick one of the boys that is willing to come on stage. All right, all right, come on over here. You stand right here, you stand right here, all right, and you stand right here. Are you terrified? Okay. All right. So let me ask you, uh, if I gave Josiah 20 bucks, I'm not going to give you 20 bucks, but if I gave Josiah 20 bucks and said, all right, I need you to cover your meals for the next two days. I got to go out of town, right? Uh, would I have confidence that he'd be able to feed himself? No. If I gave 20 bucks to John Muncy and said, I'm going to be gone a couple days, just feed yourself. It might be like ramen noodles for a couple days, and then he'd blow the rest on four for four, yeah, and then he'd end up finding a way to go to the peddler. So, right, if I gave 20 bucks to J-Rod, that boy could eat for a month, man, right? You can figure out how to make that work. Well, the reality is, discipleship is this idea that if I give, I, I know that he can eat on his own, but a little baby can't. A newborn Christian can't feed themselves, right? And the idea is you do everything for them to feed them and you help them and you feel like everything you do is to help them just feed themselves, right? You get to a point right here, it's like, I feel like you cross a hurdle when you say, go get your own food, it's in the kitchen. But you still have to monitor it because they're gonna eat candy bars and ice cream, right? So we're, we're raising them, we're making sure they're eating right, they can't just eat anything. We're helping them to understand the same way as a Christian who is, is kind of not really newborn, but they're still young and they're discovering new teachings out there, right? And so because I have a burden that I'm not willing to have him eat anything, I keep an eye on what he's eating. I make sure what he's eating is profitable for him. That's that next layer of discipleship. Muncie... I'm pretty confident that he can handle it on his own, but sometimes I want to take him out to eat and make sure he's eating good, right? It's, it's that, that idea. He can handle it. He's taking care of himself. He's a big boy. But you, your goal is to get to a point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I humbly say yeah. you need to get further. Yeah, yeah. Well, your goal is to get to a, just a place of maturity where this is that level of discernment. 
And when you grow in the, the point of discipleship to, to be in a place where you can discern his desire, do you think that he could invest in him? Do you think that he could invest in him? Do you think he could invest in him? Could he feed a newborn baby? Of course he could. Could he feed a newborn baby? This is discipleship. It's feeding and making sure. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Josiah. <laughs> it's feeding them. It's making sure what they're eating is right, and you're, you're walking them along, and when they get into trouble, like, that's your main priority. If they're having trouble, that's my top priority. I'm dropping what I'm doing, making sure that everything's right. And the crazy thing is, it is not, not many greater pictures than this idea of a family. And by the way, I put this, I was going to put that up there, but that, that is one of the most frustrating things. <laughs> I, Brandy, if, if Brandy, when we had four kids coming up and we're, you have to feed them, like, I know it just seems trivial for some of you women in here, mothers that do this, like you could be talking on the phone and watching TV and feeding your kid, I'm there like, it's all over them, it's all over me. Just, it takes patience. It takes patience. Discipleship takes patience. We wanna get it done quick. We wanna meet once a week, make it a clean cut meeting. But discipleship involves your life. It's so much more, and I'll, I'll say this, people that have, have not only just lost their life to, to be a disciple, they found that there's nothing more encouraging in life than making disciples. Timothy said it this, or Paul said it this way to Timothy, you then, my child, my who? My son, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to J-Rod. You're bringing up a Josiah, and you want him to be able to entrust him to a person with discernment. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Listen, I put four things down if you're a note taker. Uh, four things that just help us. Help us kind of define what discipleship looks like. I know I just said that it's, it, does, it takes patience, absolutely. Um, this is a big deal to me uh, because it's affected the way that I carry myself as a pastor. Um, it's affected every aspect of life, but uh, first thing is it's personal. It's not a program. I, I talk to pastors. You want to make a program that opens the opportunity to make disciples. But if your heart is not invested in people, personally invested in people, then you're just going through the, the routine of a program. It's ironically calls Timothy my son. All right, so uh, I have two guys that call me dad joking around, uh, two guys in this room. And it was born out of a trip. Uh, for the first, and I'll say this, before I moved to, uh, moved to Canova, I called them or FaceTimed them because I, I recognize that if I'm moving forward as a pastor, my desire is for them to be able to do what I do better than I do it. So before I even got here, I, was, I remember I was at the beach even on vacation talking to Hunter on FaceTime, right? 
and I'm describing just getting to know him and stuff. And from that point until about November, we, we met once a week. It was a weekly, once a week thing. It was a meeting to invest in that person and to, to find brotherhood fellowship. But what came out of, we went to Tampa. And you guys have probably seen the goofy, crazy fun that we had in Tampa. Well, the most value, valuable thing about Tampa was it got personal. My relationship with two guys that I didn't know three months or six months ago became personal. And now, now our relationship, sharing in the truth, like every time we get together, we'll drive to a campus ministry and while we're driving, we're talking about truth and interacting. What's this Bible verse mean? Or what does this, have you guys ever thought about this? You know, it's a continual thing. I get a text or he'll swing by the house or whatever. This is the idea. It's personal. It's not a program. It's purposeful. It's not passive. If Josiah is putting something in his mouth that he shouldn't, am I going to be like, hey, buddy, hey, why don't you not do that? Okay, buddy? No, no, get that out of your mouth. Right? I love you, and that's why I'm speaking up. It's, it's purposeful. The, the reality is a lot of times we fellowship and get together with people we love. That's not necessarily discipleship unless truth is being spoken in a tender heart of love. I'm for you and I care about you. And this is why I'm saying this. Paul, all through this, there was a number of times it said, uh, be strengthened by the grace of God. Another time it said, um, don't neglect the gift that God's given you. It said another place, don't let people... Look down on you because of your age. Right? Paul was saying very forward things. He said it in love. Number three, it's prolonged. It's not prompt. It doesn't happen overnight. You think about what it takes to faithfully entrust the word of God to somebody that's maybe a, a child in the faith. It takes time. It takes investment. It's not prompt. It, it, you, your desire is to be able to pass the truth off. That The person that's sharing truth is full of discernment and capable, right? Last, it's, it's a process, not a performance. And I encourage you with this because a lot of times when there's people all over your life, I guarantee, I bet 80% of the people in this room have people in their life that, that they could invest in. You could, you could be walking them through a passage of scripture which seems insignificant to you, might be transformational to them. And the crazy thing is, I don't know what to say. What am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do? How do? How do you make disciples? Just enter into a process of walking with them in truth. And, and let me encourage you, it's not about you. Um, I, I'm thankful for Steve, uh, from the time I had a first conversation with him, um, it, was, it had been a couple weeks before Labor Day. Uh, to this day, I've seen everywhere, that he, every aspect of our church, his desire is to raise up men and women equipped with the gospel, right? Everything he does is for that purpose. And uh, I'll say it this way, like, we went to Martinsburg uh, for a Southern Baptist meeting it's the annual meeting for West Virginia. And so, what is it? Casey, Nick, and myself, Casey Moore, and uh, Nick, and uh, myself, were in the car. Danny was driving, Danny Pelfrey, 
And Steve is in the very back seat, and he hands us three ring binders and said, all right, turn to page one. And if you've driven through West Virginia, right, everywhere you go, Danny's a solid driver, but I'm just saying, you're looking down and doing this. For five hours on the way to Martinsburg, we went line after line having a conversation about how to be a leader, how to raise up leaders. We got to Martinsburg. I thought, man, we'll, we'll do this for a couple hours. No, we did five hours of it on the way to Martinsburg. So we get in the car. I thought, man, we probably accomplished what we needed to. Maybe we'll be able to chill out, take a nap, drink coffee, whatever, chat. He said, all right, take out your books. Turn to page 68, right? And for five hours on the way home, <laughs> he, he let us taste, uh, what's, the, what's the Italian place on the way, though? Um, anyway. Uh, we were, we were, it was a sweet fellowship, though, in that investment. It was a sweet fellowship. And uh, it's crazy. We're not called, as pastors, ministry leaders, we're not called to do the work of the ministry. Our job is to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. So, so my call to you right now, and we're going to deal with this a little bit tonight. If you're around uh, tonight for the adult Bible study, uh, I ask you this question, who are you discipling? Or who is discipling you? And who are you discipling? Is there a person that you go to to be encouraged in truth? Who's the first person you ask when you have a question about the Bible? Who's the first person you go to when when you're struggling with a situation and use wisdom. Ask yourself, who is discipling you? And then ask yourself, who are you discipling? There are people so hungry all around this room for somebody to pour into it. I hear that sentiment so, so often with young moms. I just wish, I wish an elderly lady would help me know how to do this, how to be married, how to, how to raise kids well, how to cook, for crying out loud. Like, Husbands, same thing, uh, looking for somebody to speak into them. And so I just challenge you with that. I, I hope that you're invested in the kingdom of God as, uh, as we pray, uh, thankful for a church that is aiming the trajectory that we're to be making disciples. Uh, that's our purpose.